Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikwe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is Saturday, uh, October the 28th, uh, 2023, and we are broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on in our program, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the method sent out uh, by United States Congresswoman Cori Bush saying that Israel imposed a communication blockage in an effort to conceal the crimes being committed in Gaza. An article in Intercept magazine exposes the construction of a U.S. military base in Israel. Clashes have continued between Hamas military units and the Israeli Defense Forces in their incursions into Gaza. And a marketplace was targeted by the Israeli Air Force in Gaza. In the second and third hours, we continue our coverage on the siege of Gaza. We hear an interview with South African Foreign Minister Dr. Naledi Pandora, uh, who visited the United Nations just this last past week. Another report examines the potential for the Lebanese resistance, Hezbollah, to enter the conflict involving the siege of Gaza. Also, we look at the implications of the impact of the United Nations votes this week on the future of international relations. These and other features were brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with the revolutionary voice and music of the North African state of Egypt. We'll hear Om Kalsum, and this is from an opera entitled Hawe Ini. I'm <laughs> 
welcome back. And that was uh, the revolutionary voice and music of Egypt uh, with Um Kalsum and her orchestra. Uh, the track was entitled Awet Ani. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for today, Saturday, October the 28th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment, and these are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. U.S. Congresswoman Cori Bush of St. Louis says that Israel cut off communication networks and the Internet in Gaza to hide what they're doing. Cori Bush, the U.S. representative for Missouri's 1st Congressional District, commented on the Israeli decision to cut all Internet and cellular communication in Gaza stressing that, quote, collective punishment of Palestinians in Gaza is a war crime, unquote. Bush said in a post on X that, quote, Israel has cut off all Internet and cellular communication in Gaza. They don't want the world to see what they are doing, unquote. She also added that, quote, we must not look away from this violence, especially during a blackout, end quote. She proceeded to call for a ceasefire in Gaza at a time when the United States contradicted its claims by calling for a humanitarian truce in the enclave, then voting against it at the United Nations General Assembly uh, uh, session uh, just uh, yesterday. Now, when Operation Al-Aqsa flood was launched on October 7th, Bush called for the cut of achieving a just and lasting peace. We must do our part to stop this violence and trauma by ending the U.S. government's support for Israel's military occupation and apartheid, she wrote. Earlier on Friday, massive regions in the Strip suffered from a complete Internet outage, while its largest communication service provider announced that it had shut down all operations across Gaza after Israeli war jets destroyed the company's remaining infrastructure. All routes connecting Gaza to the outside world were destroyed, by Israeli strikes, Al-Jawal said in a statement. Meanwhile, Al-Mahadin correspondents reported that Friday witnessed the most violent strikes on Gaza since October the 7th, confirming that the attacks are being carried out through air, land, and sea. Our correspondent noted that central Gaza is being targeted, as well as after attacks in the previous days were concentrated north of the Strip. While Israeli warplanes were conducting airstrikes, Palestinian resistance forces unleashed a series of heavy and consecutive rocket launches, <clears throat> targeting the vicinity of Tel Aviv, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and central occupied Palestine. In other news, a report published in The Intercept says the base was established to counter the danger present by Iranian mid-range missiles. That is a base of the United States located in occupied Palestine. Now, two months prior to the start of the Palestinian resistance operation Al-Aqsa flood, the Pentagon granted a multi-million dollar contract for the construction of facilities for U.S. troops at a confidential base located in Al-Naqab Desert, known as codename as Site 512, The Intercept reported. Site 512 previously termed, quote, a cooperative security location, unquote, a label meant for low-cost, minimal presence bases has been applied to facilities capable of housing up to 1,000 troops, the report indicated yesterday. 
Now, according to the Intercept, uh, Site 512 was not created to address the threat posed by the Palestinian resistance, but rather to counter the danger presented by Iranian mid-range missiles. However, when thousands of the Palestinian resistance rockets were launched on October the 7th toward illegal Israeli settlements in occupied cities, Site 512 remained inactive because its primary focus was monitoring Iran, which is over 700 miles away, the report pointed out. Despite President Joe Biden's denial of plans to deploy U.S. troops as part of the ongoing confrontation between the Palestinian resistance and the Israeli occupation, a covert U.S. military presence is in place and expanding. As indicated by government documents, the report reveals, since the start of the Israeli aggression on Gaza, the United States has shown unwavering support for Israel, its biggest ally, providing it with financial and military aid, greenlighting its massacres against the Palestinian people, and absolving the Israeli occupation of its daily crimes. Biden is ramping up military aid to Israel, paved the way for a swift, decisive, and overwhelming response against the Palestinian resistance. As the White House is requesting an additional $14 billion to support of support from Congress, most of which is meant for weapons. The American military claimed to have prepared 2,000 personnel and a range of units on a heightened standby for potential deployment to Israel. <clears throat> However, defense officials state that the forces are not intended to serve in combat roles and are tasked with advising and medical roles, but some could enter to support Israel's occupation forces. Two aircraft carriers, the USS Gerald R. Ford and the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower, have already been sent to the region, which includes one missile cruiser, <clears throat> at least two destroyers, and dozens of aircraft, including jet fighters, alongside around 5,000 troops. The USS Gerald R. Ford has reached the area, while U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has directed the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower aircraft carrier to be sent there. Austin stated that the deployments are intended, quote, to deter hostile actions against Israel or any effort towards widening the war, unquote. The USS Baton, an amphibious assault ship currently near the Red Sea, has also been directed to steer toward Israel. The U.S. Defense Chief also confirmed that the U.S. would deploy a terminal high-altitude area defense, that's THAAD, anti-ballistic missile defense system, alongside additional Patriot battalions to uh, the state of Israel. <clears throat> You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, Al-Qasim's uh, statement uh, came shortly after the Israeli military announced that it had made a new incursion into the besieged Gaza Strip just on last evening. Al-Qasim Brigades, the military wing of the Islamic resistance movement Hamas, announced uh, yesterday that it had foiled an attempt by Israel to land its forces on the Rafah beach in the southern Gaza Strip. In a statement, Al-Qasim Brigade said that its fighters discovered a landing attempt that took place at dawn today, that was Friday yesterday, and clashed with the Israeli forces. The resistance on the ground necessitated the intervention of the Israeli Air Force, which saved the Israeli force to, on the ground, so it fled towards the sea, leaving behind a quantity of ammunition. Al-Qasim's statements come shortly after the Israeli military announced that it had made a new incursion into Gaza Strip last night. Israeli Army spokesman Daniel Hagari said uh, that uh, the joint Israeli military forces carried out a raid inside Gaza without giving much verifiable 
details. The Hagari added that the Army maintains high readiness to deal with every emergency. Earlier, the Israeli Army published a statement saying infantry, engineering, and armored units led by the Gaash 36 formation had taken part in the operation, as well as military drones and helicopters. The occupation military added that during the air incursion and artillery, its forces attacked the neighborhood of Al-Shaiyah, east of Gaza City, in addition to anti-armor rocket launchers belonging to the Qassam Brigades. On the other hand, Palestinian sources said that the Israeli forces penetrated a very limited area overnight at the furthest outskirts of Bet Hanun, north of Gaza, and the Al-Barij refugee camp in the center of the Strip. And finally, in regard uh, to the outrageous and genocidal war uh, being waged uh, by uh, the Israeli uh, state, backed by the United States and other imperialist countries against uh, the Palestinian people, Rami Dugesh, a representative of the Ministry of the Economy in Gaza, confirmed in an exclusive interview with the Palestinian Chronicle that Israelis caused significant destruction to the largest commercial area in central Gaza. The Palestinian Ministry of Economy in the Gaza Strip has announced that Israel deliberately destroyed the largest commercial area in central Gaza. In a statement issued on Monday, the Ministry of the Economy stated that the Israeli forces shelled the Nusrat camp market and completely destroyed it. The central market is relied upon by countless residents of central Gaza. With that, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journals, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, October the 28th, uh, 2023. Just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break and we'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. Bring me good. 
that was uh, the music of Odetta, Odetta Holmes, uh, the track entitled Gallows Pole. And, of course, there are thousands upon thousands of Gallo Poles uh, in the form of aircraft uh, dropping bombs on civilians, women, children, destroying marketplaces, destroying churches, mosques, hospitals, civilian convoys, refugee centers all over the Gaza Strip. And it's being paid for and caught by the government in Washington, D.C. through uh, the Israeli Defense Forces, the Israeli Air Forces, etc. We're going to listen uh, to a interview uh, given uh, by South African Foreign Minister Dr. Nalidi Pandor. Uh, just this last past week, she was in New York uh, for the continuing uh, United Nations uh, debates within the Security Council and the General Assembly over uh, the siege of Gaza and the necessity of imposing a ceasefire and a humanitarian corridor uh, to serve uh, the 2.3 million people of Gaza who are being eliminated. Let's listen uh, to this interview. Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, Dr. Naledi Pando, has made two interventions at the UN Security Council this week, first on the Palestinian question and then earlier today on the Women, Peace and Security file. She is my guest this afternoon. Minister, good to see you. Welcome back to New York. Thank you very much and uh, good day to you. So in the council earlier today, you said that the Women, Peace and Security agenda is under threat through the proliferation of conflicts around the world. You mentioned the current Palestinian-Israeli conflict in the Middle East. You touched on conflicts in Africa. You mentioned Ukraine. Are we losing this battle? Well, I think the Security Council really has to marshal its best efforts at ensuring a unified voice uh, that directs the world's attention to solutions to these crises. Uh, I have a sense from uh, participating in the two debates that we still find a, a UN Security Council that's quite divided and that has been unable to find a, a united voice on these uh, important issues. I had the opportunity to speak to the United States Ambassador and understand they'll be presenting a resolution uh, sometime today, as will Russia. Um, and <laughs> yep. I'm saying I think really we need a synthesis because there is so much conflict that it's only through this multilateral institution that a unified voice can emerge which will give a sense of hope uh, that we can overcome the most uh, uh, difficult problems. I'm going to talk about those geopolitical divides and these competing resolutions mm. in a minute. You said in the council yesterday, Minister, that we must work through the UN to create two states. And yet we often hear that there is no substitute for direct negotiations. In fact, the Israelis and the Americans will say that it cannot happen in the Security Council. It cannot happen at the UN. It must happen directly between the parties to this conflict. Is the UN still viable in terms of this process that hasn't really delivered uh, over so many decades? Well, you know, Sherwin, uh, let me say that I believe the uh, United Nations, particularly the Secretary General, has enhanced the legitimacy of this uh, institution uh, in the past uh, months in really uh, you know, articulating the key priorities that the UN should focus upon and in being front and center where there are crises, uh, most especially in this current uh, crisis between Israel uh, and the Gaza. So I believe um, that the United Nations continues 
to have currency and is an institution that can play a role in drawing parties together. The solution won't be found in the UN as an institution, but the UN should be playing a leading role in uh, its using its ability to draw uh, parties, countries, individuals together. This is what we meant. Minister, some would argue though, that Washington, for example, has played a more meaningful role in terms of those direct negotiations between the Israelis and Palestinians, and yet you see a lot of division around the, the continued role of the United States. Does the United States still enjoy South Africa's full confidence as a mediator in this conflict? I think the United Nations is an important body. As to the United States and its particular role, the United States has taken a specific position with respect to Israel. Uh, there hasn't been much reference uh, in the discourse of the United States, uh, reference to Palestinians. Uh, it's been much more uh, about Israel. What you need is an institution and individuals and leaders who haven't taken a particular position that draws countries apart, but that is able to bring uh, people together. And I believe that the Secretary General and the United Nations body could be that institution. Minister, you mentioned the two competing council resolutions, one from the United States on humanitarian pauses, one from Russia calling for an immediate ceasefire. You yesterday joined urgent calls for what you said was an immediate comprehensive ceasefire, so I'm guessing you're leaning towards the Russian resolution. I'm leaning toward a ceasefire. I'm against uh, Well, the United States is not proposing that. Well, then that's, I think their resolution should uh, not enjoy a sway uh, with member states, because when you say pause, what do you mean? You start bombarding again a day later. Uh, I think we need to bring this conflict to an end. The suffering has been immense. And uh, what we should all be working at is uh, finding the hostages, getting them released uh, by Hamas, and stopping the killing. The United States is, is basically affirming in that resolution, calling for humanitarian pauses, Israel's right to self-defense. What do you make of that argument? I worry about that notion uh, because, again, uh, context is being uh, amended to suit a particular argument. We're aware that uh, the people of Palestine has suffered great harm over many years of settler uh, occupation, uh, denial of rights, denial of freedom, denial of territory, denial of sovereignty. So there's a terrible context that we have to speak to. So it can't just be a matter of defense. There's also an obligation as an occupying state, as we mentioned in our statement uh, yesterday. So it's not just a matter that you have a right to shoot at people, you also have a right to protect the innocent. Um, and what we've seen is the death of many innocents. Yeah, Minister, also in the council yesterday, you said that the conflict has again illustrated the inadequacy of our organization, the United Nations, and particularly the UN Security Council. It has clearly not been able to, over time, prevent conflicts from spiraling into intense violence and harm to ordinary citizens. All of us need to work harder at reforming our organization uh, so that it's more capable at responding and protecting civilians. My question to you is, in terms of those reform discussions, there is a winning consensus. It's very clear that any new permanent seats, including two for Africa should include the veto. Is the veto not the problem here? Um, I'm not here to change the decision of the uh, African member states 
of the African Union, so the Isolini consensus stands as is at present. But the reform I'm speaking of is not merely the Security Council. If you read beyond uh, the Security Council reform, you'd have noted that what I said is that the UN needs to look broader at capacity to protect because what's happening, we're all observing while people are being mowed down. Surely this shouldn't be how we are as a global community. And what we need to look at is <clears throat> can we establish through the UN where all the world is gathered a mechanism, be it soldiers, a peace force, I don't know what it might be, but that would be there as a shield for the innocent. But let me give you so one. They're, they're not harmed. Let me give you one practical example. There was a resolution put forward by the Brazilians calling for humanitarian pauses, <clears throat> among other things. It had 12 council members in support, two abstentions from the UK and Russia, and the United States vetoed it, scuppering the entire thing. That's why I ask you again: Is the veto not problematic? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, we. This is one of the reasons why the reform. Uh, needs to be uh, inclusive of how decisions are made and where the final decisions are taken. At the moment, you have a use of the General Assembly to almost overturn what would come out of uh, the Security Council when there are instances of a veto. The General Assembly can vote for or against the resolution and is taken as adopted. Should we be moving to that kind of more democratic inclusion? I don't know. I would just but say these that are deliberations general, we should have. General Assembly resolutions are not legally binding. Not, they, do, they don't they have the same power. That, well, so that, that system would need to be looked at uh, as well. Showing it's very kind to say that there's power because people are dying. Clearly you need much more power than what exists right. through a legally uh, passed resolution. You need to be able to act to protect. Minister, your call with the Hamas leader Ishmael Haniyeh after the October 7th attacks has not gone down well in certain quarters. The SA Jewish Board of Deputies in a statement quoted <coughs> fundamental principles of the Hamas Charter. It says the destruction of Jews in the Jewish state, Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it. There is no solution to the Palestinian problem except jihad. In retrospect, Minister, was it a wise decision to have that call? Well, as you know, South Africa is always dedicated to finding solutions and to pro uh, promoting peace. When the Hamas leadership asked to speak to me, I agreed. And I conveyed the wish of South Africa that there be peace. This is my responsibility to do. When the apartheid state wanted to speak to our leaders, we didn't say they'd been harming us, they'd imprisoned our fathers and grandfathers. We said, let's talk. This is the South African character. Is the rocket fire from Hamas that continues to this day, is this problematic in terms of where we need to move here? Rocket fire toward? It, it toward Israel. From well, Gaza. I think uh, both nations have to really look at finding a way to peace. We've made this very clear. So uh, I'm not in the business of attaching blame to one or the other. I'm thinking more about the men the women and the children who are being murdered every day. And that is what all of us should be paying attention to. Minister, final question. In certain South African quarters, calls for the Israeli ambassador to be expelled, for the Israeli embassy in Pretoria to be shut down. Uh, what is your analysis of those calls? What is the estimation? Is there a red line? What, is it, what does it take for, you know, in lieu of a decision of that nature? 
Well, I think when you're faced with very difficult uh, situations, one of the important things is to always maintain maturity and balance. And, uh, you know, very quick reactions which appear radical but don't solve a problem are not good decisions to make. So I have said before to colleagues who've raised this with me, tell me what would happen in 24 or 48 hours after such a decision is made. Will there be peace? Will the Palestinian people enjoy freedom and justice? I suspect we need to do more than the closing of embassies, and that's what I'm looking toward. Minister, we appreciate your time as always. Thank you so very much indeed. Thank you. Dr. Naledi Pando with South Africa's Minister of International Relations and Cooperation in conversation with us on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and of course two key Security Council resolutions being put to a vote on the humanitarian file in that regard in just a few hours. And uh, that was an interview uh, with South African Foreign Minister Dr. Naledi Pandora. And uh, she was discussing uh, the current siege of Gaza. She was at the United Nations uh, just this last past week to participate uh, in the debate uh, that uh, raged all week uh, in regard uh, to the situation in Gaza, where over 7,000 people are known dead, uh, tens of thousands of others have been injured, and over 1 million have been displaced uh, as a direct result of the airstrikes, uh, the ban on humanitarian assistance by the Israeli uh, government and the Israeli Defense Forces, who are backed up 100% uh, by the administration of President Joe Biden in Washington, D.C. Another major question, uh, which has, of course, uh, been raised over the last few weeks and came more to the fore uh, just this week uh, as a result of military clashes between the Lebanese uh, resistance movement, Hezbollah, and the Israeli Defense Forces. We're going to listen to an analysis of uh, Hezbollah and its role uh, in the current crisis involving Gaza, the West Bank, Jerusalem, and all the Palestinian-occupied territories. Will Hezbollah launch an all-out war on Israel? The Lebanese armed group has exchanged fire with the Israeli military, but it stopped short of using the most powerful missiles in its arsenal. So what could happen if it launches a full offensive? This is Inside Story. Hello again, I'm James Bays. An escalation in skirmishes between Hezbollah and Israeli forces is raising fears of a wider conflict. Saturday marked the worst day in recent fighting along Israel's northern border with Lebanon after six Hezbollah fighters were killed. The Iranian-backed group and Israel have been exchanging fire across that border since Hamas attacked southern Israel on October the 7th. And the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, warned Hezbollah against opening a second war front with Israel. Netanyahu said that would bring unimaginable devastation upon Lebanon. Victoria Gatenby has our report. The personal possessions of people living in fear. Many are sheltering in schools like this after fleeing their homes in southern Lebanon. Fighting around the border with Israel has escalated since Hamas launched its assault on southern Israel on October the 7th. The conflict between the Palestinian group's ally and the Israeli army is raising fears of a wider war. That's as Israel is massing its forces for a possible ground invasion inside the Gaza Strip. 
We are concerned and we are part of this battle. Let it be clear that whenever events unfold and something arises that requires our intervention to be greater, we will do so. Hezbollah is seen as a significant force in Lebanon, wielding both political and military power. The Shia movement rallied public opinion against the Israeli occupation of southern Lebanon after being founded in the early 1980s. And despite Israel's withdrawal in 2000, Hezbollah has retained its strength with financial and military support from Iran. For Iran, the group is crucial for deterring any attack by Israel and exerting influence in Lebanon and the region. Hezbollah has highly skilled fighters. They helped Syrian President Bashar al-Assad during the country's civil war. And its arsenal is reported to contain Iranian precision-guided missiles. Israel considers Hezbollah its most formidable foe since both sides fought to a standstill in a 34-day-long war in 2006. And now, with the United States deploying two aircraft carriers and several warships to the eastern Mediterranean, the risk of an escalation in fighting in the region is growing. Victoria Gatenby for Inside Story. Let's bring in our panel of guests to discuss this further in Athens. It's Nicholas No, editor-in-chief of the Beirut-based MiddleEastWire.com and news website. He's also editor of Voice of Hezbollah, the statements of Saeed Hassan Nasrallah. In Tel Aviv, it's Yuri Dromi, founding president of the Jerusalem Press Club. He's also a retired colonel in the Israeli Air Force. In Brussels is Elijah Magnier, military and political analyst who's covered military conflict in the Middle East for the past 30 years. A warm welcome to you all. Thank you very much for talking to us. Um, if I can start perhaps with you, Nicholas. You're today in Athens, but you've been based for many years in Beirut. You speak to people in Lebanon all the time. It's where you're permanently based. Can you tell me what is the reaction so far from people, ordinary people you speak to, to what's going on in Gaza? Well, I actually just returned from Tunisia, where the outpouring of Tunisians onto the streets in support of Palestinians is tremendous. The largest street protest that they've seen since the fall of the Ben Ali regime in 2011. In Lebanon and elsewhere in the Arab world, I'll let Lebanese and Arabs speak for themselves. But I think what we're seeing, and me as an observer, someone 20 years in Lebanon uh, is, is seeing and speaking with friends and trying to find my way back there right now, is... Uh, is really uh, two things. One is great anger over the scenes that are unfolding, over the death and destruction. Uh, great anger as well and frustration that there seems to be little to stop uh, the devastation moving forward. And I think amongst Lebanese friends and loved ones and colleagues, a great fear amongst many of them, uh, you know, most of whom are, of course, civilians or unaffiliated or affiliated with political parties that have a quite different position than Hezbollah do. And they are quite concerned that a devastated country, which is currently Lebanon, could see even wider devastation if indeed the border skirmishes, which now many of us are considering a kind of de facto state of war, if those expand. And if they do expand, I think the, the general consensus is that the destruction in Lebanon and likely in Israel and perhaps elsewhere is going to be tremendous, certainly in Lebanon. And that's exactly what the Israelis have, of course, promised. Yuri, you're a former uh, spokesperson for Israeli governments, but you're also a military man in the past. Um, I want your assessment. Uh, Nicholas just used the word skirmishes. Other people say clashes. What would you say? How would you describe what's been going on in the north to this point? I think Hezbollah or Nasrallah actually is testing the water 
uh, we debate among ourselves whether there was a master plan that uh, Hamas starts first and then uh, Hezbollah moves in when Israel is uh, sucked in into the Gaza quagmire. Uh, but this way or another, um, uh, obviously Hezbollah needs to show some solidarity, but I think Nasrallah is still licking the wounds from, and, and so many Lebanese as well are licking the wounds from uh, 2006. And then I think he settles with those skirmishes, I would tell, uh, call them uh, indeed, uh, and uh, hoping that perhaps that Israel will uh, make the first move and then the blame could uh, lie on the, the Israeli side. Elijah, can I get your assessment of what you think is going on? Because um, it has been getting slowly worse, slowly more intense. In fact, Saturday was the worst day of violence so far in the north. I think Hezbollah is already in the war, which the Israelis are not realizing yet. First of all, Hezbollah attacked the radar site, taking the initiative in the Sheba farm that is occupied by the Israelis and considered as the Lebanese territory. It's imposing an unspoken rules of engagement on the Israelis. Secondly, Hezbollah expanded the scope of its attack, targeting area along the borders with Israel, which are 100 kilometers from the Nakura to the Mount of Hermon on all the borders, including to the Golan Heights, the Syrian-occupied Golan Heights. Thirdly, Hezbollah is engaged in fighting inside the territory controlled by Israel rather than defending itself in the Lebanese soil. That means for the first time in the history of Israel, the battle has been moved to the other territory and not happening on the territory that is under the attack of the Israeli army because normally it's Israel that takes initiative to start a war. Fourthly, Hezbollah has engaged by mobilizing all its elite forces along the border, showing that they have evacuated all the training camps, all the military facilities, and leaving only concentration area to engage with the Israelis. That is an indication for the Israeli military on the other side of the border that Hezbollah is already at war and is starting within the first two kilometers, and now it has expanded to five kilometers. Fifth, Hezbollah is already blinding all the Israeli electronic surveillance capability by removing them, bombing them uh, using the snipers, removing all the thermal surveillance cameras, the sensors, the spying devices, communication towers, etc. That is forcing the Israeli army to rely on drones and on physical patrols, exposing them to Hezbollah laser-guided uh, missiles and hitting so far more or less 40 Israelis between killed and wounded. By starting all this military operation, Hezbollah has drawn to itself three Israeli divisions, including special forces, to make sure that they are not going all to Gaza and they are engaged there, forcing the Israeli army to create two lines of defense on the borders with Lebanon. 
the war has started already, it's in a different way. Okay, let me bring in Nicholas on that, because Nicholas, you literally wrote the book on the words of Hezbollah's leader. So can I perhaps give you the words of Hezbollah's deputy leader, uh, Naim Kassim, Sheikh Naim Kassim. Um, we are trying to weaken the Israeli enemy and let them know we are ready. He was speaking at a funeral for a fighter, and he went on that they were keeping three Israeli army divisions tied up in the north instead of preparing to fight in Gaza. Exactly the point uh, that Elijah just made. What's yeah, your exactly comment on those points? Yeah, I, w I would say, I mean, first of all, you know, we, we translated uh, and, and communicated some of these uh, speeches and interviews over the years, which I think provide the basis for the tactical and strategic moves that Elijah and others are describing right now that we're seeing. And I think one of the most important things, if you actually look at what Hezbollah leaders uh, have said, actually, quite publicly or in private as well, I think what you need to do as a first order of business is push back against what, what Yuri just said, which is that Hezbollah somehow is still licking its wounds from the 2006 war. I think quite in reverse, that is regarded as a divine victory. Indeed, that's what Nasrallah has called it. That's what you cited Naim Qasim, the deputy head, has called it. That was actually viewed and continues to be viewed as a major strategic victory for Hezbollah. And I would actually also agree with some analysts who say that that really marked a turning point where Israel's qualitative military edge, we can see a steady decline vis-a-vis -vis the military forces that Hezbollah has been able to build up, that they have developed through the war in Syria, whether you're for it or against it, they have, ex they have extraordinary battle-hardened experience there. And to say that they look back at 2006 as a kind of something that where they, it costs a tremendous amount. Indeed, it's quite the reverse. And Hezbollah leaders are actually very, let's say, buoyed by the experiences of 2006 and afterwards. In fact, they view that as having been a victory that lays the framework for what comes in what they call this next great war. If we're there right now, today we are not at that moment, but I think all of us probably agree that the factors kind of that might spark this off or lead it to an acceleration into an even deeper conflict um, are all building up uh, by the hour, unfortunately. If I can bring you in, Yuri. Yes, Yuri, do you think Israel is underestimating the strength of Hezbollah? No, no, I don't think so, but I think Hezbollah is underestimating the strength of Israel. And the fact that they look at the, uh, what uh, Nicholas Joseph said about uh, looking at the 2006 campaign as a victory reminds me of the Egyptians who have a museum of the uh, victory in the Ramadan war, in the, uh, the Yom Kippur war. And uh, if you remember, it started with them, both the Syrians and the Egyptians, taking us by surprise. And in one week uh, or 10 days, we were in the outskirts of Damascus and 101 kilometers, not from Tel Aviv, but from Cairo. Now, 50 years have passed since. Uh, so the question is, is indeed, as was said, the, the quality edge of, uh, of Israel is uh, declining. Uh, I think uh, both Hamas and probably Hezbollah will find out very soon that this is not the case and uh, that the IDF has really learned the lessons and um, 
Uh, I, if I'm not uh, mistaken, then the Nasrallah himself is in the bunker for 17 years, I believe. And uh, if he used to boast of being the defender of Lebanon, I don't think that many in Lebanon treat him like that. And, and in general, the idea that, that Nasrallah is uh, promoting that Israel is weakened. Israel uh, is like the spider's web theory, etc. This is misinterpreting the, what democracy is. And they saw, they looked at the protests uh, uh, here in Israel in the last six or nine months and, uh, and, and took it to be a kind of a weakening of Israel rather than uh, seeing how vibrant the Israeli society is. So they're going to test us again. And I think they will be uh, up to big surprises. Elijah, I'd like to move on from 2006. But before we do that, that was a 34-day war. And Hezbollah fired some 4,000 rockets. I remember the Katusha rockets, not very accurate at all. Just quickly bring us up to date. How has Hezbollah's force, how has its weapons changed since 2006? Since 2006, Hezbollah fought like I think Iran as well, there's nothing can be two things. First, the Israeli Air Force uh, that is very modern and very powerful. Secondly, the unlimited support from the Americans. Because without the Americans, Israel will never engage in a war because the war needs a lot of ammunition and a lot of money to top up the, uh, the dreadful economy in a state of war. Nobody would go to war without making sure that they will have a lot of money and they will be supported and they create a bridge, as the Israelis always create a bridge with the Americans and Europeans this time in 2006 via, via Ireland to supply the Israelis lack of bombing because they need a lot of bomb. I mean, it's not easy to bomb for 14 days um, a small city like Gaza and to achieve the killing of 1,837 children and 1,023 women, it requires a lot of effort, really, and a lot of bombs. Now, we move on by saying that Hezbollah understood that, and to compensate, it needs a long-range missile. And if we look at the distance between Nakura and Ilat, that is more or less 400 kilometers. That is Hezbollah starts fighting and launching uh, missiles from the borders, which is not going to be the case because Hezbollah has moved outside the residential areas to take away from Israel the excuse of bombing civilians, which is, I don't think is going to happen because the Israelis will bomb the villages anyway. So because of that, Hezbollah needs only a distance to target Haifa and Tel Aviv, where all the concentration of the Israeli industrial, economic, and critical infrastructure is in Haifa and Tel Aviv, which are between 30 to 60 kilometers. And because of that, with all this precision, long-range missiles, Hezbollah needs to reduce the range of the missiles and to increase the explosives by having half a ton or one ton of explosive for each missile. Now, people will argue that the Iron Dome will intercept. We've seen how the Iron Dome, when flooded with missiles and rockets, 
is not capable of intercepting 100%, but it is always between 55 to 60%, which is more than enough for Hezbollah for 40 out of 100 missiles. And according to the Israeli information, Hezbollah has 250,000 missiles and rockets, and all his rockets have been modified with a very cheap amount of money to precision rockets, and we're talking about here to from 7 to 25 kilometers only. So I don't think Hezbollah is underestimating the Israeli power, firepower. It is, of course, underestimating the army itself when fighting man-to-man, because we have seen the invincible army becoming very vulnerable after only a few hours of Hamas attack in, against the uh, uh, Gaza division, and in few uh, hours only, making so many hundred uh, soldiers as uh, hostages or prisoners, including four generals. So because of that, and because the damage that is going to be inflicted on, is on Israel, I think Israel needs to think twice before thinking, I'm going to stop the uh, fighting against Israel. And I think it is doing so because for the first time in the history of Israel, it has accepted to fight on a demarcation line. It is not exceeding a certain kilometer and distance imposed by Hezbollah by a non-state actor against the most powerful army in the Middle East in just a few days. So the drone capability of Hezbollah, the anti-ship missiles, the precision missile that can hit all the energy platform, Haifa Harbor, all the airports in Israel will not only cripple the economy in Israel, but will destroy it totally, even if Biden will inject $14 billion. We see today there are no more rooms and hotels in Israel. They are starting with tents. So for the first time, they are moved to become internally displaced. This is not something very usual for the Israelis not to find a place for them. And the war on the northern front hasn't started yet. Okay, let me bring in let me bring in uh, uh, Yuri there. Um, Elijah paints a picture of a very sophisticated military force. I'd like to um, bring up with you some reporting, which I think is interesting. Uh, comments from the Israeli Defence Minister Yoav Gallant. Uh, he seems to be worried about Hezbollah. He says Hezbollah is ten times stronger than Hamas. And also, and I'm going to quote where this comes from, the New York Times. It says that in the early days after October the seventh. Um, Mr. Gallant, the defense minister, um, apparently told U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken that he had advocated a preemptive strike on Hezbollah, but he was overruled by other Israeli um, officials. In your view, was he right? Uh, I wouldn't advocate a pre-meditated attack against Hezbollah. I would deal thoroughly with Hamas first. Uh, and uh, keep uh, Hezbollah at bay. I don't share uh, Elijah's uh, uh, pessimistic or, or, or bleak view of what's going to happen in a, in a war with Hezbollah for the simple reason that uh, if a war starts, uh, of course it will begin with the barrage of uh, missiles and rockets, etc., and he's right. They're going to cause us a lot of damage. 
But in the few hours of such war, in the few hours, definitely in a day or two, uh, Israel will inflict on Lebanon such a, a dramatic uh, damage that uh, not only Lebanon or other Lebanese will uh, rise up in arms, but, but the whole world will call for a stop. And then we will uh, insist on going on uh, until Hezbollah uh, uh, steps back. Uh, so I don't think it will be a protracted war like uh, in 2006. It will be very, very uh, dramatically uh, different from uh, from the from the other. And as as for what uh, Gallant said, uh, yes, some people in Israel, probably Gallant himself, believe that. Uh, uh, this is the right moment, and we shouldn't uh, repeat the mistake we did with Hamas, that we let it uh, grow and arm itself and, and become such a uh, huge threat to Israel, and we should deal with it now, because later it will be even more difficult. Um, I doubt it. As I said, uh, Israel should uh, keep uh, Hezbollah at bay, uh, and if dragged into war, uh, as I said, uh, the price Lebanon will pay uh, will, be, will be dramatic. And I said it with sorrow because, look, in the past we fought army, army versus army. Uh, and, 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 but, but they leave us no other choice because they really, uh, take all of Lebanon as human shield. And this is what's going to happen to Lebanon, unfortunately. Okay, well, let's, let's, let's bring in Nicholas on that. Um, Nicholas, what is your view? I mean, Lebanon is suffering already. It had that appalling um, port blast in, in Beirut in 2020. It's suffering one of the worst of economic crises any nation in modern times has faced. Not everyone, definitely not everyone in Lebanon supports Hezbollah. They have very passionate supporters. But as you know, it's a very d divided society. What would be the reaction in Lebanon across Lebanese society if his, Hezbollah did get involved? Well, again, I'm not Lebanese, so let's let Lebanese speak on behalf of themselves. But what we do know is previous, and there's a long history, that shows, I think, that Yuri is making a grave analytical error here in assuming that if Israel implements its operational fighting doctrine, known as the Dahieh Doctrine, which considers civilian populated areas and civilian infrastructure as lawful enemy combatants and a wide destruction. As they've said, they'll turn Lebanon into a parking lot. If they think that that's going to then turn other communities against Lebanon, we have example after example through the last 20, 30, 40 years of where actually the opposite happens. It leads to national solidarity and support against an outside enemy that's so widely destructive. So the notion that Lebanese are going to rise up wildly or massively and create a kind of military balance against Hezbollah is dangerous fantasy in my view, simply because of the history. But again, Lebanese can speak to that better than I can. I think also there's a grave error here in thinking that it will just be a bunch of rockets, for example. This is not 2006. There are very likely going to be significant ground incursions by Hezbollah, which have been telegraphed and telescoped over the last 15 years. I'll also remind everyone that it was more than 10 years ago that Hezbollah successfully flew a drone undetected over Israel's main nuclear power facility in Dimona. 
undetected, and that was a long time ago. The okay, let, let me, the, we're, we're getting near the end of our discussion, and I'd like to bring in Elijah one more time. If there is a ground intervention, a ground invasion by Israel, do you think Hezbollah will act? A brief answer, please. Um, I don't think it's going to be immediate reaction to interfere. On the contrary, I can share, share some insightful information through my sources within the group. So I think today it is in Hezbollah's advantage for Israel to break into Gaza and to be engaged in Gaza. So the weaker the Israelis are, the lack of security the Israeli society has with its army and its intelligent uh, um, uh, forces, and the engagement in Gaza with all their might will give the possibility for Hezbollah to take advantage of the situation because it's an opportunity, and then be in conflict, even if it's going to be to a larger war that is going to be deadly for both. But the question is, is Israel ready for that? Is, are the Americans ready? Because they have also bases in the area and they are starting to be targeted. Is Israel uh, uh, prepared to have a mass in, internally displaced people being so deadly wounded that starting to crumbling? Already there is no support for the government, even if in case of war everybody supports Netanyahu, but they can't wait the moment to kick him out of the government. So today, there is a lack of security in Israel after what happened in Gaza and outside Gaza in the first hours on the 7th of October. And this confidence is going to be deteriorated even more as 50,000 people have been evacuated in the last 72 hours from the borders with Lebanon, and more are going to be evacuated to where? Is this what the Israeli government promising to the Israelis, bringing them from all over the world? to give them security? Of course not. And when the bombs start falling, nobody is going to count the bomb, but everybody is going to look at the screaming. And as your guest from Israel rightly said, they want the world to interfere to stop it because someone else needs to bring everybody down the tree because they stuck there and they know what are the consequences that are going to be detrimental for Israel for the first time in its life since 1948. Elijah, thank you very much. Thank you to our panel of guests. That's where we have to leave it. Our guests today were Yuri Dromi, Nicholas No, and Elijah Magnier. If you want to go back and see this or any of our other programs, again, you can find them on our website, aljazeera.com. Al Jazeera continues its comprehensive coverage of the conflict 24 hours a day, including reports from our teams on the Israel-Lebanon frontier. If you have any comments on this or any other aspect of the Gaza war, we're waiting for them on Facebook. Go to facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. Or you can use the platform formerly known as Twitter, now called X, and tag us at AJ Inside Story. From me, James Bays, and the Inside Story team, please stay safe. I'll see you again soon. Welcome back. That was a panel discussion on uh, the potential of uh, a Hezbollah-Lebanon resistance intervention uh, in uh, the current uh, war with Israel. It's already taking place as low-intensity uh, warfare uh, on uh, the northern border of Israel, where hundreds of thousands of Israeli citizens have been evacuated from that area, and there have been uh, firefights uh, between uh, Hezbollah and the Israeli Defense Forces. 
You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, October 28th, uh, 2023. We are broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Baby, you understand me now. If sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad But I'm just a soul whose intentions are I'm so carefree Who will adore If it's hard to hide And then sometimes again It seems that all I have Is worry And then you're bound To see my other side But I'm just a But that's one thing I never mean to do Cause I love you The voice of uh, legendary Nina Simone, and don't let me be misunderstood. And of course, we hope we are not being misunderstood here at the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. Uh, We're here on a weekly basis. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, right now we want to listen to a report on uh, the possible implications of the United Nations debate uh, on Gaza, which has taken place over the last uh, two weeks. Uh, Let's listen in. The United Nations General Assembly votes overwhelmingly for a ceasefire in Gaza. It came at precisely the same time as Israel was launching its fiercest attacks yet. With the vote showing Israel and the U.S. largely isolated over the war, can world public opinion make a difference? This is Inside Story. 
Hello there, I'm James Bays. In three weeks of war, the United Nations Security Council has failed to take any decision over Israel's relentless attacks on 2.3 million Palestinians in Gaza. If the Security Council is like the Cabinet of the United Nations, the General Assembly is its parliament, the voice of the world's nations. On Friday, it spoke loud and clear, with an overwhelming vote against Israel's bombardment of Gaza. What influence will the first effective measure of official international opinion have on Israel and its main ally, the United States? Could it have any impact on ending the war? We'll be discussing all of this with our panel of guests in a moment. But first, Victoria Gatenby has our report on the UN vote on Gaza. At almost exactly the same moment as the U.S. ambassador was addressing the United Nations General Assembly, calling for a humanitarian truce between Israelis and Palestinians, Israel began its most intense bombardment of Gaza since the war began, cutting off phone and internet services across the Strip. An amendment sponsored by Canada and the U.S. that would have added language condemning Hamas was voted down, but the 193-member General Assembly passed the main resolution authored by Jordan and the Arab group. Is adopted. It calls for an immediate truce, the release of all civilians, and the uninhibited flow of humanitarian supplies into Gaza. The General Assembly prevailed and sent the appropriate message, not only to the Palestinian people, that there is justice and fairness and international humanitarian law upholded by the General Assembly, but also it sent a message to everyone, enough is enough, this war has to stop. The U.S. was the only major world power that voted against it, along with 13 other countries, including Israel. 45 nations abstained. After the vote, Israel's ambassador accused the U.N. of, in his words, ensuring not preventing further atrocities. Today is a day that will go down in inf infamy. We have all witnessed that the UN no longer holds even one ounce of legitimacy or relevance. Resolutions adopted in the General Assembly are non-binding, meaning Israel could ignore it, as it's done in the past with few consequences. Three weeks into the conflict, the UN has finally spoken with one voice. But even with overwhelming support, it's unlikely the resolution will end the bombardment of Gaza. Victoria Gatenby for Inside Story. Well, let's discuss more on all of this by our panel of guests. And in Ramallah, we have Hanan Ashwari, a Palestinian political leader and former member of the Palestinian Liberation Organization Executive Committee. She was also a member of the Palestinian delegation to the Middle East peace talks in the 1990s. In Johannesburg, Ronnie Kasriels, a former South African government minister and leading member of the African National Congress during the apartheid era. And in Islamabad, it's Malia Lodi, who served as Pakistan's ambassador to the United Kingdom, the United States, and the United Nations. We have a most distinguished panel. Thank you very much for joining us on Inside Story. Ambassador Lodi, Maliha, can I ask you first about the General Assembly? Because you served as Pakistan's ambassador to the United Nations. There will be people here who say the General Assembly doesn't have any power. It doesn't do anything. Uh, you, during your time as the ambassador, you're actually one of the vice presidents of the General Assembly. So tell me why the General Assembly is important. I think the General Assembly is important because when there's a deadlock in the Security Council, as we saw uh, when several resolutions didn't get through, uh, which were aimed at stopping uh, the bloodshed or at least getting a humanitarian pause, 
Then uh, the General Assembly kicks in. Uh, it's uh, often called the Parliament of the world, where every country has one vote. Uh, and that's uh, a body uh, that really does reflect global opinion. Uh, the Security Council, after all, is only made up of 15 members. Uh, but the General Assembly, with 193 members, uh, does demonstrate what the world is thinking. And I think what we saw in this uh, resolution and the vote for the resolution was where the world was standing. It was standing on the right side of history. Uh, it was conveying that it wants an end to the bloodshed, to the carnage, to the genocide that is going on. And it was a rebuke to those members of the Security Council who used the veto, the United States <laughs> primarily, uh, to prevent any kind of a ceasefire or any kind of a pause in the fighting. So I think, okay, so the resolution is non-binding. But I think the force of public opinion and global opinion is extremely important. And the world has spoken. And it has spoken decisively against Israel. And it has spoken decisively in favor of peace. Okay, Hannah Nashwari, if I can talk to you about the resolution itself. It took a lot of negotiation led by Jordan of the Arab group. Let me just read out what it called for. An immediate, durable and sustained humanitarian truce. But it also called uh, for humanitarian aid to come in. Immediate, continuous, sufficient and unhindered. And interestingly, it specified what should go in. Water, food, medical supplies, fuel and electricity. This would be, would it not, for the Palestinian people, wonderful if this was actually complied with. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's wonderful, but it would be beginning to undo the horrendous injustice and damage and violence that has been inflicted on the Palestinians of Gaza in terms of uh, ending Israel's genocidal siege and prevention of all normal requirements of an ordinary life, frankly speaking. So, uh, yes, it should have taken place. It shouldn't be even under question or doubt. And it's very tragic that the superpowers, especially in the West, uh, give themselves the right to take decisions over the life and death of uh, two million uh, Palestinians. This is incredible. Ronnie, when we saw that vote, and it's done with electronic voting in the UN General Assembly, it was really a snapshot of international opinion and where each country stands. Every single ambassador or representative, representative had to say where they stood on the war in Gaza. Were you surprised by the way the vote went? No, not at all. Because we've seen over months and years what world opinions about. And we've seen the enormous response to this gross criminality of Zionist Israel and the support the United States and others give it. So one was not surprised. I was very pleased to see that we had a two-third majority. Can you imagine if we hadn't had that? How happy, how pleased the sadists of Israel and their supporters would have been. This was a huge moral blow to those criminals and it showed the Palestinian people, the people of Gaza, that they are not alone, that the world stands by them. Malia, let me just actually read out the list of the 14 countries that voted against this. Uh, there was Austria, Croatia, Czechia, Fiji, Guatemala, Hungary, Marshall Islands, Micronesia, Nehru, Papua New Guinea, Paraguay, Tonga, and then, of course, the U.S. 
and Israel. What do you make of those lists? The, the fact that the US didn't even manage to get some of its very closest allies, like the UK and France, to vote with them? Well, I think it was very significant that countries like France, a per permanent member of the Security Council, broke ranks uh, with the United States. So did uh, several other European countries, like Spain, like Portugal, uh, and, and uh, others. So I think that just goes to show that the United States is increasingly isolated in the international community. Even the United Kingdom, uh, its loyal uh, ally, uh, abstained uh, in the vote. So I think this is a very strong message to Washington. The message is very clear. The world wants the bloodshed to stop. And President Biden, by encouraging uh, Israel, is really becoming complicit in what is going on. And I think that's how world opinion is going. Uh, it's not just in the General Assembly. You look at the streets, not just the Arab street. You look at streets across the world. One of the largest demonstrations has taken place in London. There have been large demonstrations in my country, Pakistan. So I think the message should be uh, responded to. And I think the United States should shift course now and take the side of peace and justice. Hanan, I'm going to read you the quote from the Israeli ambassador. And he made this quote in the General Assembly. I'd like to know your response. We know there is no humanitarian crisis in accordance with international humanitarian law. He said that in the General Assembly, despite what we all can see. Well, other than being an outright lie, it's, it's really disingenuous in terms of trying to deceive the world once again, when everybody can see very plainly the, the horrific massacres, the, the genocidal policies, the bombing, shelling, destruction. It, it's just incredible that they say we know, so they assume that everybody will fall in step and say yes and clap. It, it's not the first time. Listen, uh, James, this is a pattern among, uh, within the UN and by Israel in particular. Israel has total disdain for the UN, and it has always described it as anti-Israeli or whatever, but it has never implemented a single UN resolution, not one. And most of the veto, uh, vetoes exercised by the US were done in order to save Israel from any kind of accountability or constraints. So let's, let's be very frank. This kind of, not just disrespect or, or disdain, even insult to the international community, is symptomatic of Israel acting outside the law, feeling that it can act with full impunity, that nobody will hold it to account, and on the, uh, the other side, that it can always lie, and uh, the, the lies become, uh, gain a life of their own and become the basis of policy, as happened uh, lately with the U.S., and all these manufactured news and, and so on to slander the Palestinians. So I think this kind of disdain is expected, but at the same time what, what makes me very upset and all Palestinians is that there's no, there are no consequences. There is no price to be paid. Will the whole world, as Maria said, this is encouraging and so on and the U.S., but will, will the whole world sit back and accept this? Why can't it enforce? There's no enforcement, no enforceability. It's decisions. And we thought that if there is a constant blockage of UN decisions at the Security Council in order to bring about peace, then 
the uh, General Assembly gains its United for Peace Resolution gains effective powers, but so far we haven't seen it. And I think that so long as it is treated as a debating society, and so long as Israel can still treat it with utter contempt, then how can we hold Israel to account and how can we stop this massacre, this carnage? Ronnie, can I move briefly away from Gaza? Do you think this has implications for Western influence? Um, Western diplomats have spent so much political capital over the last 18 months trying to get support for Ukraine, trying to get the global south to come on board with Ukraine. Have they expended a lot of that right now with what many will say is double standards? Oh, absolutely. Utter hypocrisy. They failed in relation to the Ukraine. The African countries refused to be browbeaten into the sanctions regime that the US and the EU were forcing down our throats. And with Palestine, this will be even more magnified because what the global South clearly see is that duplicity of the former colonial powers with the USA, the imperialist power that wants to master and dominate the world, that this shines through and it really affects the total view of people of the global south. And I can tell you in, in, in Africa, even where outside of the ceasefire issue, uh, on other aspects where African states are bullied into towing the US or the EU line, that it rankles. They see the hypocrisy, they see the racism, and in our streets, throughout the continent and throughout the global south, even in a place like India, you can see the millions are so outraged at this absolute slaughter that the USA and the EU states, those Western powers, are party to. They are criminals, and we must find a way to also ensure that they know where we stand and that we're not going to go along with their game. It's vital now. It's crucial. Malia, I want to bring you in on this and the whole idea of double standards and, uh, and the West, because you have a unique perspective. Not only were you Pakistan's ambassador to the United Nations, you were also Pakistan's ambassador to the United States, and you were ambassador, actually it's called High Commissioner, to, to the United Kingdom. So give us your perspective. I think it's long been known uh, that the West, or the US-led West, has practiced double standards. Uh, they talk about human rights in... Uh, countries that they are opposed to, but they don't really show much concern for human rights. I mean, in my uh, neighborhood, my country's neighborhood, there is uh, the issue of occupied Kashmir, uh, which, like Palestine, is an occupied territory uh, and has also seen huge violations of human rights. But we've not heard uh, any sound or any comment uh, from Western countries about these uh, violations. So I think what this will do is to bring into much sharper relief the kind of double standards and hypocrisy uh, that many Western countries, I think it would be unfair to club all Western countries together. Some have stood uh, for Palestine, for example, Ireland. I think it's taken a very courageous uh, position. So I think one has to be a little careful. But I will say that what it does reinforce is the shift in global influence uh, from the U.S.-led Western bloc of countries to the rest. 
So I think increasingly we will see in a much more multipolar setting uh, the fact that influence at the global level is not just the monopoly of a handful of countries that have tried to actually, to borrow uh, the word of my co-panelist, browbeat uh, others into falling in line. Well, countries no longer want to fall in line because they want to exercise their own sovereign right to say what they please and to act the way they please. And to act in the case of Palestine on the right side of history, on the side of justice and on the side of fairness. I think it's also worth remarking to you all that when we saw the debate in the General Assembly before the vote, uh, we actually were watching it. I was sitting in the studio in Al Jazeera watching it live, and simultaneously, in a most remarkable split-screen moment, there was the onslaught going on in Gaza. In fact, uh, the U.S. ambassador was speaking, giving her speech, and on Al Jazeera, in another screen, we could see really desperate images of explosions in Gaza. Colleagues, one-sided resolutions, whether they are put forward in the Security Council or the General Assembly, will not help to advance peace. Not when they ignore the facts on the ground. So there we have it, the U.S. Ambassador speaking in the General Assembly. And at the very same moment, those pictures, Hanan, was that an act of... Israeli defiance? Is that how some in the General Assembly will see it? I wonder even what the U.S. ambassador made of that going on while she was speaking. Well, look, I think it's not the first time that the uh, that Israel sort of uh, snubbed uh, the, the U.S. or thumbed its nose at the U.S. Uh, all it wants from the U.S. is its full blank support, unlimited funds, more weapons, and so on, even including the fact that they want the U.S. to fight its war. Uh, on its behalf. So uh, I don't know whether it's, con uh, it's uh, accidental or uh, on purpose or not, but I think it exposes uh, a certain hypocrisy. And uh, I would like to, to uh, go back to a point raised by uh, Malia that it's not all the West. Yes, it's not. It's mainly the West that was involved in colonial systems, particularly in the South and in our part of the world that is now behaving with the remnants of the colonial mentality, the white man's burden, the fact that the victim is uh, invisible and that they have superior rights and they can uh, judge and they can uh, take positions pertaining to the rights of their own victims. So this is an ongoing pattern, frankly speaking, that started even with us with the creation of the State of Israel on Palestinian land in 1947-48. And it continued with a dual track. Israel can do no wrong. Israel, of course, is a colonial outpost, and it has continued. Israel must never be held to account. It must be given preferential treatment. While the Palestinians are subhuman species that we can take, and we can be invisible, we can uh, take any kind of punitive measures, and that the process, the whole process of the eradication or ethnic cleansing of Palestine is something that the West has uh, embraced, so to speak. It's become a Western enterprise. And in that sense, I think we are not seeing the end of colonialism. On the contrary. And these are not remnants. This is a very active system of white supremacy, of colonialism, of a sense of entitlement and superiority. And this has been absorbed within Israel, and Israel is acting in a way that 
certainly would endanger world peace and certainly would endanger all these systems that were created to have a rules-based order and a global rule of law and so on, because it, it stays outside it. And if you have uh, uh, international humanitarian law and the convention on all sorts of conventions and human rights and so on, then they must, they must have a way of making them effective. Otherwise, we will continue to be at the weak, at the mercy of the strong and the uh, north and the industrial countries and the white uh, supremacists uh, continuing to victimize the global south whether economically or politically or morally even, and getting away with it because they have the instruments of power rather than the instruments of accountability and control and curbs. Ronnie, let me bring up what actually seems to have happened on the ground in Gaza uh, when we saw those explosions, those dramatic explosions that took place at the same time as ambassadors were meeting in New York, in addition to the water being cut, the electricity being cut, uh, no fuel coming in, very limited aid coming in. Now it seems that Gaza is going black to the world. Uh, the cell phone services, internet services have been cut. What do you make of this latest blow by Israel to the people of Gaza? Well, it's all part of the master plan. They want to cut Gaza out of the world entirely. They want to black it out. If I can just make a comment about the coincidence last night when the debate was taking place at the UN. I think that was absolutely deliberate. It's Israel and its ambassador at the UN spitting into the face of the world, showing that we are the masters and we don't care a thing about the rest of the world and we are going to destroy Palestine. We deal with Gaza and we will cut Gaza out entirely. The Surviving Palestinians can go and live in the desert, etc. So this is what their game is, totally. But I believe that the world voice, together with the Samud, the resistance of the Palestinian people, will prevent that happening. That's vital. That's the message we must all send out to the world, following on last night's National Assembly vote. Maliha, um, so, some of the yeah. consequences of the internet and phones being cut off means that people cannot ring for ambulances. It means that UN agencies, aid agencies can't speak to their staff. They can't do their work. Journalists cannot report and get the news out. Uh, as a former ambassador to the UN, do you believe these are additional war crimes by Israel? Oh, there's no doubt about it. I think uh, Israel has been committing war crimes for <laughs> over 50 years, if not more. Uh, but what it is doing now, I think it has completely defied international opinion. It has defied all norms, norms of humanity. And what is going on uh, is the kind of bloodshed that I think in uh, modern history we have not really witnessed uh, this before. Plus, I think we also uh, must look at the consequences for those countries that have been backing Israel, that have been going on and on, uh, not caring about uh, the people dying and the civilians who are dying in the thousands uh, in Gaza, but they've been going on and on about Israel's right to defend itself. Defend itself, this is defense, where you're taking the lives of innocent people. I think 
there will be consequences for these countries. They're already confronting a crisis of credibility, of humanity. Uh, and actually, I think their own people, uh, certainly uh, if you look at some of the demonstrations which are going on in cities in the United States itself, uh, you'll see that public opinion there also is watching with horror uh, and anguish uh, about how their own government is encouraging uh, a country that is carrying out ethnic cleansing by, by I mean, millions of people uh, are being affected by this. Hanan, can I bring you in on, on, on that point that Maliha has made about protest around the world? Because we've seen very, very large protests taking place all over the world. In fact, we saw one in Grand Central Station, very near the UN, which was um, Jewish people campaigning uh, to stop the war. Do you think these protests are going to have an effect, maybe even more of an effect, than a vote in the UN General Assembly? Certainly, uh, yes, Jim. certainly they will have an effect because the Jewish Voice for Peace and uh, if not now are two uh, organizations that have been active for some time, including other Jewish organizations that we have worked with for years. I remember before we used to call for a demonstration or a protest with 20, 30 people. Now you have thousands. They went into uh, the capital, into Congress, they occupied Congress, they went into Grand Central Station and the thousands, and they made a tremendous spectacle, and they gave the Palestinians an, an, a sense of enormous support that you are not alone, that the Jewish people of conscience are standing with you. This is very important, because Israel wants to claim that it stands for all Jews, speaks on behalf of all Jews and so on, and that all Jews are Zionists, or all Jews share in it. Uh, genocidal policies, but that's not true. And they stood out and they stood on the side of justice. Now, that impact will not only be felt in Israel, but it is being felt clearly in the U.S. I mean, look at the public opinion polls. The ratings of Biden have gone down enormously as a result of uh, his blind support of Israel and his embrace of, of these war crimes and his entering into a partnership with these war crimes. And I think ultimately the International Criminal Court should look at these things, not just at the Israeli perpetrators, but at their partners and supporters and enablers. In the let me, let me, bring, in, let me bring in Ronnie quickly. Ronnie, um, we don't have much time left, but people power, how important do you think it can be at this point? Well, just uh, recall what happened in the struggle against apartheid South Africa, rather similar. The South African government wanted to ignore all the resolutions, the United Nations and the protests around the world. It built up to an incredible torrent of people's power and in South Africa itself. And it, one cannot underestimate the power of international solidarity, the power in the streets, the power to pressurize governments like the US, like France, UK. We had the same opponents in our struggle against apartheid. And in the end, they were forced to buckle. So this is a very important weapon, a peaceful weapon, a highly active, militant weapon, and we'll do everything possible to mobilize the forces that are growing and growing, and we will succeed in the end. Palestine will live for sure. Thank you very much, Ronnie. Thank you to all our panel today, Hannah Nashwari, Ronnie Kasriels, and Malia Lodi.
If you joined us late, you can watch the whole program again or any of our other programs by visiting our website, aljazeera.com. Do you have any views on our discussion? We'd like to hear from you. You can go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. Or on X, that's Twitter to you and me. Search for at AJ Inside Story. From all the team, please stay safe. I'll catch you very soon. Bye for now. Uh, that was a panel discussion on uh, the role of the United Nations in the struggle for uh, the liberation of Palestine. And, of course, in the short term, the end of the siege of Gaza. And uh, this is the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Our next segment, and we'll play excerpts from Electronic Intifada, uh, a panel discussion on the potential of uh, the state of Israel, the Israeli Defense Forces, to use nerve gas uh, in an effort to wipe out uh, members of uh, the Hamas resistance movement. Let's listen in. Of course, we had the, the um, on Monday night, we had the release of two uh, elderly Israeli women from Gaza. They were returned home, uh, Yochefet, uh, Lifshitz and Nurit Cooper and there was this extraordinary scene uh, this video uh, this is the video that was released by Qassam showing their release and then um, you know they're given tea and so on but then there's this extraordinary moment uh, where uh, that's the Yochevet Lifshitz who's 85 and who is living in um, in a kibbutz near the Gaza border. And so she's being handed over to the Red Cross. And now, and she turns around, turns around, uh, pauses, shakes the hand of the Qassam fighter and says shalom to him. And that video, of course, is now quite famous and caused a lot of, yeah, uh, in Israel. Then she gave a press conference, uh, John, uh, on Tuesday from the Ikhilov Hospital in Tel Aviv, where she was examined, and she was asked, well, among, this has now been widely reported, she said that, the, that it was very frightening being, uh, being taken prisoner and uh, being carried on the back of a motorcycle, and it was extremely painful, and it sounds like an absolutely horrifying experience, particularly for a lady of that age, but then she talks about uh, being taken into a spider web of tunnels. Uh, we'll get, uh, just hold on to that for a second, Tamara. Uh, and include, she says a spider web of tunnels and a big hole as, as part of this tunnel network. We'll come back to that. Just hold that thought. But then, uh, Tamara, come, ba- come back to that video uh, where she was asked uh, why she, sh- she shook the hand of that fighter. This is what she says. Go ahead. Play it. Let's play it. מדוע לחצת את היד לאותו מחבל חמאס ברגע שהוא עבר את... And she, she says, why, why they, they treated us gently and they provided for all our needs. אמא שלי אומרת שהם התייחסו אליהם בעדינות וסיפקו את כל הצרכים שלהם. My mom is saying that they treat them kindly and provided for them. Yeah. So that we can, I think that's enough. We can, we can pause it there. 
But so uh, she she said, of course, that the Hamas uh, fighters that that they uh, treated the 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 captives well, that they ate the same food as they did, they provided them with medical care and and so on. So uh, that's just and that caused a huge backlash in Israel. We've had journalists and uh, apparently officials of the propaganda organize, you know, the Israeli official propaganda Hasbara saying she shouldn't have been allowed to give a live press conference. And uh, her son gave an interview to Israeli television yesterday, I believe, saying that uh, prior to the to the press conference, she was coached uh, by Israeli officials on what she should should and shouldn't say, but she just ignored it and decided to say what what was the truth and what was her experience. So that that's just to he, bring. He said he said she said she's not property of the state. Exactly. Yeah. yeah exactly. But. Coming back to, and then keeping in mind her uh, her comments or what she revealed about the tunnels, uh, let, let's look at this story that appeared in Middle East Eye yesterday, John. Um, now, this is something we talked about last, uh, on Monday before this came out. This story claims that Israel plans to flood the tunnels with nerve gas and then if you scroll scroll the story a little bit, um, so we can read the first paragraph or so. Uh, I don't know if we can do that, Tamara, or I can pull it up on my computer. So it says, the first paragraph says, Palestinian groups expect Israel to flood Hamas tunnels with a type of nerf gas or chemical weapon under the surveillance of U.S. Delta Force commandos as part of a surprise attack on the Gaza Strip, a senior Arab source familiar with the Palestinian groups told uh, Middle East Eye. Now, a couple of the, now, what strikes me there is this is not coming from any alleged Israeli or American source, but from a Palestinian source. I don't know what to make of this, John. What do you make of it in terms of how this is phrased, and also? what it claims could happen, which is uh, this this pumping the tunnels full of, of nerve gas. Yeah, I mean, even if it's a PSYOP, it's a deeply disturbing one. Um, it was a story that we talked about on last show because it was first leaked to Netanyahu's newspaper, the free Sheldon Adelson newspaper that gets uh, the highest circulation in Israel. So it's obviously a PSYOP that they're working on, and then they pass it on to Middle East Eye. So um, I think you could sort of see where it came from, judging by Netanyahu's paper. But, um, I, I mean, it's deeply theoretical. I don't uh, – the there's a bunch of things to say about it. The first thing I'd say is it, it, it's assuming that you're clearing the surface level. So it's assuming that you're fighting your way through the Gaza Strip, into the tunnel area that you're trying to get to. So it assumes something right away that's very unclear uh, at this point. It's very theoretical. The Israelis themselves say that the tunnels are, their tunnel study is theoretical um, because they actually don't have any operational experience in the tunnels. Their soldiers are prohibited from entering the tunnels unless it's been closed at one end. So they don't have any operational experience in the tunnel. 
Um, that woman, the lady released the other day, has more, much more uh, operational experience in the tunnel than any Israeli soldiers, even um, even close. So that's the first thing to say. Um, and then it assumes that you're able to stay in that position and hold that position and move up and down through the tunnel, because the tunnel is a very difficult um, space to operate in. Like she said, the lady said, it's a spider web. And a spider web implies that you have many turns, many forks. Um, and so even if the soldiers can get down into the tunnel, it's very resource heavy to be down there because you have to guard with two soldiers each tunnel turn of this spider web that she's describing. Your radios don't work. It's dark. Um, your night vision goggles don't work because it's so dark down there. Um, you don't know where you're going. If you send a robot ahead of you, you have to tell the robot where to go. So if you don't know where to go, the robot doesn't know where to go. Um, and so if it was a single objective, as if like we're trying to, the Delta Force are trying to clear out the basement where they're, where they found, say they found the place they want to go, which itself isn't clear. Gilad Shalit was six years in the Gaza Strip and the Israelis admit they never had a clue where he was at any point in that six years. So already we're making enormous assumptions on Israeli capabilities um, that they have never demonstrated before. So say it's one objective, it's one basement, it's one room that they're trying to get. Um, can you do 25 of those? Can you do 40 of those? It takes a company level amount of soldiers to handle these operations, 200 minimum, because the soldiers have to be constantly replaced because it's the air is difficult, it's dark, disorienting. Um, you're, it takes a long time to get down there. The tunnels, um, you know, could be 30, 40, 70 meters deep, like 70 stories down, right? Like um, it's, it's deep under the ground and you're disoriented, the, the air is difficult, and then they have doors. They have doors on these areas um, that lead to the next area. Those doors can be closed, and then they have to be breached. So the Israelis have to go down in the tunnel, bring the explosives down with them. In the 2014 war, they were blowing up tunnel entrances with 11 tons of explosives. So now you're bringing all of those explosives from Israel. You're driving them through Gaza, presuming what? Nobody's shooting at these, uh, you know, transfers. Um, and then you're taking those extremely dangerous explosives down under the ground and you're creating explosions where your soldiers are. You're risking tunnel collapses. The air is terrible. Um, and your own people that you're, in theory, trying to, to save, sounds like you're trying to kill them, if you're going to put nerve gas in there, um, are, are down there. And that's one. That's if it's one tunnel. There's 1,300 tunnels. There's 500 kilometers, of, the Israelis say, 500 kilometers of tunnels, and some of them are 70 meters deep. So uh, it's just a really difficult uh, thing to imagine. And while that's all happening... The Palestinians have self-contained units. So they have phone lines that are just for the tunnels. They don't connect outside. They can't be tapped. 
they're down there with food, fuel, uh, oxygen, ventilation, weaponry. Um, they John, have I all of the advantages. Every single advantage is theirs underneath the ground. I think we can... Sorry, John. I think we, we have a... Uh, there was a video that was released of the tunnels recently, um, which I think we can play. Um, let's play it, and then we can talk about it. All right, so that's a Soraya Al-Quds video, and you can see I from just, there... Uh, I'm the, just sorry, the John, tunnel. to interrupt, just for those who didn't understand it, the, that's Soraya Al-Quds, the uh, Islamic Jihad's military wing, and at the end of that video, they say, Ahlan wa sahlan bikum, so they're saying to the Israelis, you know, welcome, we're waiting for you. So it's kind of taunting them. Yeah, and the lights are on. When the Israelis come, they'll turn the lights off. So it'll be total darkness. And you see those, that for, the fork that, that they walk around you, when they turn the corner. If the Israelis are going down there with men, they need to, every, everyone, every one of those turns needs to be defended. So the soldiers that do actually make it down into the tunnel and they're moving through the tunnel disoriented, pitch black, no radios, counting their footsteps to try to figure out which ways north, south, east or west. Uh, Palestinians all know where those tunnel turns are, and when the Israelis reach each turn, they have to leave a soldier to guard that flank, right? So each soldier that is coming down has to guard each one of those turns, or else they're going to be ambushed from behind. The tunnels are designed for that purpose. They're designed, ultimately, uh, for protection, but with the understanding that there's going to be an attacking force in theory, like the Israelis say, in theory, they have no operational experience doing this, um, that they'll be attacked. So you have to assume, which we don't know, but you'll have to assume that there's booby traps, that there's false doors, that there's fake entrances that they spend time and resources trying to blow up where there's nothing behind it. Um, any kind of decoys like that. The whole time they're doing this, they're at the risk of mass casualty. Their own gas, they're carrying their own gas down into this tunnel. Um, they get trapped in a room holding their gas. It's not clear that that's even possible. There's 13. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Electronic Intifada, one of the best sources uh, on uh, the Palestinian crisis. And that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. Uh, you've been listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, October 28th, uh, 2023. And we've been broadcasting uh, live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. And uh, if you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of 
some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with the music, uh, classic jazz music of Tad Dameron and Miles Davis uh, performing live in Paris in 1949. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. Next selection, we'd like to play an original by Tad Dameron, Good Bait. la plus moderne du jazz. Cet orchestre est composé de Tad Damon, un des pianistes de l'école moderne, Miles Davis à la trompette, James Moody, ancien saxophoniste ténor du fameux Gillespie, notre ami Kenny Clark à la batterie et Stila à la basse.
l'orchestre de Tad Damon et Miles Davis que vous avez entendu dans des improvisations de style tout à fait moderne. Now, don't blame me. Le même orchestre va vous interpréter maintenant Don't blame me. Thank you. 
written by Tad Dameron, Lady Bird.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.